Amen, amen. Hey, I had somebody tell me a couple of weeks ago, listen, when you don't finish by about 1137, people in the nursery start getting antsy, and so just know that's Justin's fault today, and so uh, all of your hate mail and emails and all those lovely encouragements, you can direct those to Justin at Ridgecrest.com, traditional spelling. So hey, this morning we're in 1 Thessalonians 2. 9 through 12, if you want to begin to make your way there. If you don't have a Bible, a copy of God's Word, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to your family. As you're making your way through that, if you don't know where 1 Thessalonians is located, there's a table of contents at the front of the Bible. It's going to let you know how to find it. And then as we make our way through today, the large numbers are chapters, the small numbers are verses. 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. Over the last three weeks, and so today's the fourth week, we've been making our way through this section of text where essentially Paul has gone through and he's defending how he's been and his ministry to this church there in Thessalonica. And so they essentially said he didn't do anything. He engaged in error. It was just kind of a waste of time uh, that he was harsh with them. And so he's been going through and systematically rebuking these things, asking them to remember who he is and how he engaged. And then today he finishes this section, and he's really, in some sense, asking them to remember the pattern of ministry that he, Timothy, and Silvanus engaged in, and remembering that pattern of ministry to find themselves walking in it. So I think back to being a kid and watching my dad and his brothers get out and work. One of these memories in particular, they had this large, it was called a bow saw, so it's a chainsaw, but on the end, instead of having a flat bar, it kind of arcs around. And as a kid, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Now, really, it's only ever good if you're cutting logs on the ground. Like, if you want to take down a tree with it, it's a lot of work. You shouldn't do that. You're using the wrong tool for this job. But as a kid, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world because, one, a chainsaw is really cool to crank up, right? If, if you're a man and don't think a chainsaw is cool to crank up, you've never cranked a chainsaw and held that power in your hand and brought a tree into submission. Well, bam! It's awesome. You should do that this afternoon. Talk to your neighbor before you cut their tree down. Anyway, but I remember being a kid and walking over to this thing, and it was like hernia-inducing, right? And so you, you, you brace the knees, you set the back, you pull your, <laughs> your abs in tight, and you go to pick it up, and your arms just, they just come out. And it wouldn't pick up, and it wouldn't pick up, and it wouldn't pick up. And finally, I'm strong enough to pick it up, but now I can't crank it, right? And so I grab the, I grab the pull cord, and I'm holding the chainsaw like this. I'm excited it's going to crank. And I drop it thinking it's going to crank and it sputters and doesn't do anything. But I just remember seeing my dad and his brothers walk over, pick it up, blah, 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 zim, zim, zim. <laughs> and all I wanted to do was that thing. But by the time I was old enough and strong enough, that chainsaw was long gone and I never saw it again. And I had to buy myself a different one. What we find is that as kids, we want to grow up, and in some sense, there are people you find that you want to be like. Maybe it's not your parents. Maybe it's somebody you see on television. Maybe it's somebody you read about. But there's somebody that you want to pattern yourselves after. And when you become to be a little bit older, you're a parent, you're a grandparent, you're significant in the life of somebody else. I mean, people are looking at you, and they're making a determination. Is, is Larry worthy of me emulating? Is Joel worthy of me following? Is Miriam worthy of me following? Like, do, do I see something in them that I want true of me? Now, what the Apostle Paul says here in 2, 9 through 12 is we showed you a pattern of behavior, and now we want to call you to walk in that pattern of behavior. And that's what we recognize, is that the community of faith should have people in it worthy of patterning our lives after, 
in as much as the community of faith patterns their lives after Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, let me pray for us once more, and we'll, we'll quick dive into this. Father, this morning we come into this place and we recognize, just, I'm, uh, my heart is heavy recognizing our brothers and sisters in Ukraine that are waking up today to war, that are, are wondering where their family members are, and we read through Romans 12 that says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. So we want to mourn, we want to grieve with them this morning. We want to grieve for those who are fearful. We want to grieve for those who have lost lives of family members. We want to grieve with those who are terrified in this moment. And so would you cause our hearts to unite with their hearts, and would you undergird, support them with our prayers by the power of your Holy Spirit. They are not alone. You go before them. God, when we hear wars and rumors of wars, we are reminded that this place is not our home. God, I pray that you would dispel in us the desire to pray for peace, and that would be our ultimate goal, but that our hope would only ever be found in the person of Jesus Christ, and one day he's coming. And that's what our prayer is. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and set right. Come and bring justice. Come and bring your vengeance. Come and deliver your wrath. Come and rid us of tears and rid us of sorrow. Come and let our faith become sight. God, that's what we long to see. And as we reflect upon your word this morning, as we dedicate ourselves to the study of it, I pray that in the moments between the now and the not yet, in the moments between now and your coming, now and our death, that we would dedicate our lives, that we would grow weary of easy living, that we would grow weary of simple faith, that we would dedicate ourselves to be on fire for you. Give us this one true and holy ambition, this holy calling, that all of our lives would be poured out as an offering for you. Help us not to live for any other cause, any other person. For you and for you alone, would you give us that kind of dedication? And setting our hearts on that dedication, would you equip our minds now for the ready application of your word to that purpose? God, we submit all those requests and, and this time to you that we might worship you in the careful study and application of your word. In Christ's name, and they all said, amen, amen. Uh, 2, 9 through 12, let's read it together. Paul writes and says, for you remember, brothers... Our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Who does what? Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul begins, and, and, and really, as he's wrapping up this section, notice that, that he's asking them to recall how he has been. It, he's not saying, take my word for it. He's saying, stretch back into the data bank of your mind. Remember what it was to engage with me. And he pulls on something that would have been present within their minds. If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your, everybody say, labor of love. And so this labor of love, this same idea is what he pulls on here. They have a labor of love, and he says, remember, brothers, our labor and toil. So what do we see there? In some sense, they've already been patterning their, 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 their manner of life, their pattern of existence on Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. 
Now, they might not have known that. Might, they might not have said that. If somebody walked up and says, I'm sorry, like, how are you patterning your life? Their answer might not have been a ready recitation of well, what we saw in Paul, what we saw in Sylvanus, and what we saw in Timothy. But through using this word and through recalling that, Paul is helping them to see this is what you've already been doing. You've already been doing this. Remember how we work. Now, how Paul worked and, and how he engaged is important. You see that there were those who essentially said of Paul, he's kind of a freeloader. Like he's kind of just there and he's floating along. He's the guy that always happens to wander in right about the time to eat the meal, but he always seems to disappear right about the time to pay for the meal. And so we would say this person is not all that welcome. My great-grandmother, a number of years ago, and she's dead, and so I feel very comfortable talking about her this way. My brother is at her house visiting with her, and, and the pastor came by to say a word, and hey, Miss Carter, hey, da-da-da-da, just visiting with her. And at the end of the time, he said, no, Miss Gladys, I'll, I'll see you again next week. And her response was, I guess you'll keep coming as long as I keep paying. Right? Well, that's a funny preacher joke. That thing kills at pastor's conventions. But she, well, she was a little bit free with her tongue, and that's one of the milder things she said there at the end of her life. But there's this expectation or this cultural adaptation, this caricature of pastors that, that they're lazy. Right? If you've not told a joke about a lazy pastor, you've not gotten out. And so we recognize that in some sense, this is what Paul is pushing back on. He was in no sense lazy. He was in no sense uh, writing and, and, and forcing himself upon them and living off of their generosity. In fact, look what he says. He says, we worked night and day that we might not be a, everybody say, burden. That he might not be a burden on them. No, if you're in the book of Philippians, in chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, you'll recognize that Paul tells them that when I went to Macedonia, no one joined with me. Nobody helped me except you Philippians. You gave to me generously to support my ministry to the church in Thessalonica. So we come to this understanding that Paul's there and he's working tirelessly, that he's also getting financial assistance from the church in Philippi, but it's not enough to support him, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Now you begin to ask the question of why. Are they, are they not a generous church? Are they, do they, have they not had some type of stewardship program? Is Paul failing to tell people they need to give financially? Maybe. But when you come to recognize the reality that this church, by the time Paul plants it and leaves, is maybe two and a half months old, these guys are young and growing in their faith. They're, they're not matured in their faith. This is the very beginning of, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did for you. Bam, they start following Jesus, and they're, they're figuring out all the various details of what that looks like in their life. First and foremost, they recognize, and as Paul has already told us, you have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So they've not worked out all the various ways that they need to give themselves to following Jesus. It's not a failure on their part. It's a growing in what it looks like to be a faithful believer and follower of Jesus Christ. They've not yet made it to that point. But Paul wants to let them know, listen, we worked tirelessly. He's not engaging in exaggeration, likely the, the way the Apostle Paul's day would go. Some would rise, he'd get out there, and he would begin to work with his hands. And so we know from the book of Acts in uh, chapter 18, 1 through 4, that Paul is described as being a tent maker, and so he's working with leather. He's out there, and they're, they're making uh, sides for buildings. They're making implements for use in the home and in the kitchen. And so when he's out there and he's doing it, works from sunup till sundown. 
Now, the amazing thing about this is that Paul doesn't split, he doesn't bifurcate work with ministry. He doesn't split these things. What he does is he combines them. Look at what he says here. He says, we work day and night that we might not be a burden to you while, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And what does that give us the impression of? Paul is violating this sacred division between work and religion. He's violating this. A lot of us have this understanding that when we're in our place of work, we do not want to engage with the gospel. Paul gives us this pattern that this is such an incredibly vital place for interjecting gospel-based conversations. He says, there wasn't this, this line where when I step onto the property of my employer, I'm no longer who I am in the church. I'm no longer who I am in Christ. He says, when I step into this place and I'm working so as not to be a burden on you, I'm using this time, I'm leveraging these conversations to preach the gospel. Now, one of the ways he's preaching the gospel is he is not a lazy glutton. I had a, a pastor friend of mine that worked out in Vegas for a number of years, and he had a number of uh, guys in his church who were contractors, so they built homes, they built a number of different things. And when those guys would go out and they would try and find employees, there was, there's a ton of Mormons that live in Vegas. And they made it their practice, they made it their habit to only try and hire Mormons. They wouldn't hire Christians because what their experience was is that the vast number of Christians they hired were lazy. But almost all the Mormons they hired were hardworking, they were honest, and, and, and they got it done. Now what a shame it is that Christians, those who recognize we are not working unto our salvation, could be seen as lazy, whereas Mormons who are decidedly working for their salvation could be seen as being faithful. The Apostle Paul gives us a picture here of what it, like, what it looks like to be hardworking and what it looks like to bring the gospel into our places of work. Think about how your place of employment, how your school, how your friend group, and the conversation there could change if you did not follow the patterns of gossip, if you did not follow the patterns of cultural commentary, and instead you begin to interject a gospel-centered worldview. You're talking about the Ukraine tomorrow. And you say, man, I absolutely think Putin is terrible. I absolutely think these things are awful. But seeing the end of violence isn't what gives me hope. What gives me hope is. And then you have a conversation that centers on your reality and experience and exposure to the gospel. Do you see how that's so different? To saying, man, if we just had a different president, our foreign policy, policy would be different. You know, if NATO just would stand up and defend Ukraine, if they would just admit them, and, and you enter into becoming a, a, an expert in all things geopolitical, where do you personally have hope? And where do you personally have hope that has something to say about what's happening on the world stage? The Apostle Paul, as he's in there and he's talking about the Roman Empire and how difficult it is and how hard the times are on people, has hope in the coming of Jesus Christ, and that's what he's telling them about. And he works all day long communicating this, and when work's finally let out, Paul goes home and he sits down on the couch and he watches Netflix until he passes out and he wakes up the next morning and he does it again. Or he's like YouTubing his happy heart out and he's just laying on the couch. He's like, oh, you gotta check this out. The cat falls again. And here's another one where the cat falls. Oh, look at this puppy. We need a puppy. He's not doing that. 
we have become experts in self-indulgence and gratifying self, and we have become we have become pathetic in the exercise of being exhausted. We've learned, we've forgotten how to work hard and work to exhaustion. We feel that exhaustion creates this time and space where I just need to step back and I just need to explore how I'm feeling. Instead, the Apostle Paul gives us this picture that we've not yet nearly approached the point of being exhausted. He was worn out. He worked all day doing physical, manual, exhausting labor, and then he gave himself to gathering with other people in their homes because he recognized the necessity of fostering community. That's the picture and the pattern of the, of the work of the gospel in the New Testament. People, poor people working all day long, and then at night they recognize how incredibly important it is not to rest and recover, but to gather and pray and be encouraged in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what he does, and that is the church we must be. Amen? So listen to what he says. He says, listen, you've seen this. You're our witnesses. God has seen this. God is our witness. He describes their behavior in terms of three words, holy, righteous, and blameless. He says it's holy, it's righteous, and it's blameless. Now, you may have the understanding because you've been in church any significant length of time that there is a pastor, that there is a missionary, that there's a church leader who's failed you. And so you come to this understanding that that pastors, that missionaries, that church leaders are sinners. Let me just spoil it for you. Yeah, absolutely. Like, why did it take you so long to come to that conclusion? Now, what makes it more difficult is that when pastors, missionaries, church leaders, Sunday school teachers are not just sinners, but they are those who have sinned against you. Do you see the difference? It's okay for the people around you to be sinful. It's not okay in some sense for those people to have sinned against you. That's what makes it more difficult. Now, what Paul says there, he says we're righteous, we're holy, we're righteous, we're blameless in our conduct towards you. Now, what we don't see in there is a description that he was absolutely perfect and he never failed them. Now, he's also only there maybe two months or so. But what we get a picture of instead is this is the aim and this is the trajectory that he sat, that they sat for themselves. Now, in Galatians 2, we got a picture of what it looks like when someone fails. Paul, in Galatians 2, goes over to Peter Peter, who had formerly been eating amongst the Gentiles, and he said, then some men of the circumcision party show up, and Peter changes his entire engagement with the church there because of how others might see him. And so Paul lovingly goes to Peter and calls him out of that sin. There is no expectation for any of us, for you or for me, for perfection. Such an expectation creates a sense of legalism. It creates a culture where it's not okay to fail. And in a culture where it's not okay to fail, it fosters in us the necessity for duplicity. It makes us liars. Right? We put forward flawless people who live flawless lives. And you know what those people are? They are dying under the burden and the weight of a reality they can't maintain. This is what happens in you and in me when we try and put forward this idea. But an aim, an aim we can get behind. How holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. He comes back to the idea in verse 11. He says, For you know how like a father with his children, 
Now, back in chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul said we were like a nursing mother to you. And so we have this idea of mother and father. And so Paul is showing to them tenderness, and he's showing to them the idea of what it looks like to be stern, of what it looks like to drive them diligently towards something. And he does so in verse 12 along three different ideas. He says, like a father with his children, we exhorted, we encouraged, and we charged. We exhorted, we encouraged, and we charged. Now, the ideas of, of exhortation and encouragement really are somewhat synonymous there in the language. And so he's there, and he finds them struggling to do right. And so he's calling and saying, listen, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary. Listen, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But if you could just take another step, if you could just take another step, if you could just continue to walk in this pattern, to walk in this direction, to walk in this way, don't grow weary. This is what encouragement, this is what exhortation looks like. There's a sense at which I believe that we hear exhortation, we hear encouragement, and when we find ourselves struggling to maintain it, what does that feel like in us? It feels like in us failure. We internalize what it feels like to be a disappointment to those who are exhorting and encouraging us. And we hate the feeling of failure. And not only do we hate the feeling of failure, but we hate the feeling that someone is looking at us thinking that we are a failure. I want people to think highly of me. I want them to esteem me. I want them, when they see me, to think charitably of me. And knowing that when people see me, they think I'm a failure? Man, that's a hard reality to live inside. Because I, I begin to think and see myself through the lens of what I suppose and how they see me. And I begin to see myself and describe myself in those terms and think in some sense as the enemy takes and moves these things that this is how God sees me. The Apostle Paul recognized that the church there in Thessalonica, that they weren't a church of perfect people. And he is a cheerleader and a champion for them. He is calling them again and again beyond and through their experiences of failures and through the difficulties of their life saying, you can do this in the power of God. And this is why the last word he says, I charged you to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of God. Now, where do you suppose they discovered what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of God? They saw it in Paul, they saw it in Timothy, and they saw it in Silvanus. And it's what it looks like to be holy, what it looks like to be righteous, and what it looks like to be blameless. See, Paul doesn't give them a concrete, this is what it has to be, and these are the ten things behind each of these. He gives them an aim. He gives them a direction of what it looks like to walk in this manner. Now, you and I, we tend to find ourselves in one of two ditches. So ditch one is we look at holy, uh, righteous, and blameless, and, and we know that we don't closely approximate holiness, and so we give ourselves a buy on that. We know that righteousness is difficult, so we give ourselves a buy on that. But blameless is something that we recognize that we don't always maintain. So while we get a buy on two, we're nailed to the wall on three. And for those of us who lean more toward rigorous rule keeping, the Pharisees inside of us, when we get to the point where we can no longer keep those things, we want to rationalize our failure and we begin to look at the people all around us. And we, so we look over and say, oh, look, it's D. Hilton. I know that guy. 
He's not holy or righteous or blameless. I've seen him do this. It, it's Joanne Jenkins' birthday today, and so we see her back there, and we say it's her birthday, and what does the birthday create in you? A sense of come and celebrate me, so it creates pride and hubris in her, right? It's just it's what happens on Joanne's birthday. You guys know this. You've, you've, you've seen her experience this. And so we derive pleasure in our failures and seeing those fall around us. It's every bit, in, in a sense, the idea of what it is to have a plank in one's eye and to be so incredibly preoccupied with a speck in someone else's eye. In some sense, it does take love and care to see the difficulties in somebody else's eye. But to see them for the sole point of pointing out and making ourselves to be holier and righteous than the people around us, there's no loving aspect of that. And so that's ditch one, the idea that if we can't keep it, nobody else around us could either, and we need to point out all the ways. And ditch two is to be so incredibly discouraged at our inability to be holy, righteous, and blameless that we allow it to overwhelm the sense at which God loves us. You recognize your holy father looks at you, and he sent his son Jesus, who is holy, who is righteous, and who is blameless, to be the embodiment of perfection in your place. And what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of God is to walk in such a way as that you are constantly dependent upon Jesus. In your every single step of the way, dependent upon his Holy Spirit, there is nothing in you that is on your own. All that is in you is complete and utter dependence upon God and the power and the equipping of his Holy Spirit and the sacrifice of his son. And this is what he does. He calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. Why do we find ourselves not discouraged and overwhelmed? When the world stage is, is being turned upside down, because we recognize that we are people who are not created for this kingdom. We are a people who are not created for this country. We are a people who are not created for this world. We are a people not created for this time. This place is not your home. So God creates in you, whether you know it or not, and you know how to articulate it or not, he creates in you a sense of homesickness that you don't yet know how to articulate. It's a place you've never been. It's a country you've never experienced. It's not just a thought in your mind that the grass is greener on the other side, but the shades of this grass in its shoe are the colors of which your mind cannot understand, which your heart knows intrinsically it needs to long for. Because in that place, there's no death. In that place, there's no sickness. In that place, there's no crying or mourning. In that place, all we ever do is enjoy the presence of our God and his goodness. It is his dominion, his rule. It is his glory we will enjoy forever and ever. Amen. I want to read it in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, and then I'll pray to close. 25 through 28. Jesus is talking to the disciples there asking questions that are inappropriate. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. I'm at their authority. Their great ones exercise authority over them, and it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray. Father, the pattern you give us to copy, to model ourselves after in Jesus is one of service and not of being served. And Jesus was perfectly holy, the embodiment of righteousness, completely without sin and found to be blameless. And he served us in giving to us a sinless record. He took upon himself the penalty and the punishment for our sin, for our rebellion, for our disbelief, for our attempts to be good and to be self-sufficient. He died in our stead. He calls us to experience his salvation. Salvation in his name. Jesus, who died and rose again, calls us to abandon our own pursuits and to come to know him. God, I pray that we would know Jesus. I pray that we would know forgiveness in his name. And I pray that we would live lives aiming for his likeness in all things. God, we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.